Today's word comes from Acts chapter 12, verses 5 through 19. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning for them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us quickly and we'll jump right into it. Father God, you are good. All that you do is good. Father, you are marvelous. You are miraculous in your works. Father, your providence humbles us. It brings us to our knees, causing us, Lord, to be compelled by your love towards obedience. I pray, Father, that you will be with us this morning as we open your scriptures and hear the testimony of the work of your spirit throughout the ages, establishing your church, the work of your spirit. Pray, Father, that you would be with us this morning. Lead and guide our hearts and our minds. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. So this week was the 15th birthday of a little girl uh, named Leah Sherabu. Uh, Leah enjoyed going to church and singing in the choir. She sang in such a way that Pastor Daniel uh, just called it beautiful. Uh, sang, sang softly and melodically, and he loved it. 
15, 15 years old. I, I have a 14-year-old girl, Zoe. So that resonates close to my heart, that age. And as I was reading about her mother, Rebecca, and her father, Nathan, as they would normally at this time, around her birthday, be planning a celebration, it struck me that there was no celebration plans. Uh, there were no balloons. There were no streamers. Um, so I asked myself, why is this birthday different than any other? Well, primarily because Leah lives in a part of the country where Boko Haram is a terrorist group, and they kidnap little men and uh, little men, yeah, and little ladies, young men and women, um, and they hold them hostage. Um, to the tune of about a thousand children have experienced this. And Leah is one of them. They use these children as, as ransom, kind of negotiating um, tools for the local government to get their um, chief people released and so forth. Uh, but they also have an alternative motive, and that is to get them to convert to Islam. And as they do this, and as they work out these negotiations, they, they plan to, or they have released several of these young children. Uh, and recently, they just released about 100, um, which is a very small percentage out of the thousands that they've taken. Um, but some of Leah's friends <clears throat> were released just recently this week, around the time of her birthday, uh, but she wasn't one of them. And the witness to her parents, Rebecca and Nathan, was the fact that she refused to denounce her faith in Christ. She refused. This 15-year-old girl, showing the boldness and the confidence in the God of her salvation. It's humbling. And it's caused me to ask a question, and I wonder if you've asked the question, why, why God allows his witnesses to suffer so horribly in the hand of corrupt government and religious oppression and manipulation? How those who seem to stand up for him most boldly seem to be hammered down in silence and acts of terror to cause them to be quieted. This has been the witness of the church over the last 2,000 years. It's 2018, and the kingdom of God has suffered violence and persecution. The same political corruption and religious oppression was suffered by the apostles of the early church. Peter, here in our text today in Acts 12, is subject of an account of such terror. Political leaders at the time, King Herod, was known for the violent hands that he would lay on the church, the bride of Christ. At this point in history, Herod had just put James to death, the brother of Jesus, by the sword. And by all <laughs> imaginations, Peter would be next. They just arrested him, he was in custody. And when he saw how the Jewish people of the day were pleased at the death of James, the church figured that Peter would be next. And so they, they began praying. They began praying, they began praying fervently. And it just 
cause me to ask myself, why, Lord? Why? Why, why do you permit such things? And even here in the account of the shootings that, that happen in our country, and I mean, even this year, my wife was telling me the other day, as she's kept up with a lot of these things, that there's almost been a shooting for every day of this year at a, at a local school in our country. And the reality is that it doesn't seem to be changing. So here, as we look at Acts and we see what's happening in the life of Peter, he's in custody, he's waiting to face what all will conclude was execution as well. And in this context, and throughout biblical history, we have learned the most about the nature of God's redeeming rescue missions. And what comes to mind is the children of Israel, right? I look at Exodus 14 and I think of what he told Moses to tell the children of Israel during their miraculous moment in Exodus 14. He says to them, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. See, our God is never wasting the suffering or the blood of his saints. In fact, he uses it to build the church and bolster their confidence. The text today teaches us many things about how God fights for us. I want to propose to you three. The first is God's miraculous redeeming rescue mission involves miraculous intervention. What is the meaning of the miraculous? How do we recognize it? Well, it is something when God directly involves himself in the actings of the world. It's an unusual event that manifests God's direct intervention on the world. You see, God, because he cares for his people, because he cares for his glory, because he cares for his name, he doesn't just allow tyranny and terror to go unchecked. He doesn't allow injustice to be unchecked. Injustice. But God steps into the mess. And when you're in the mess, the only person who can meet you there is a miraculous God. There's no question that this is a miraculous occurrence. On several levels, there's a manifestation of God's direct intervention on the world in this text. First in verse 7, we see that an angel of the Lord, uh, <laughs> the Lord, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. An angel of the Lord stood next to Peter in a cell as he's chained to two guards, and he has two centuries outside of the cell guarding that, and then on top of that, there's an iron gate enclosing it all, and an angel appears. How does that happen? Miraculous. The second is that the chains fall off his hands. The text doesn't say that Peter was gifted with sleight of hand in some way he got himself loose of the chains. In fact, as we know historically, the way that they chained Peter up was that one chain had one hand connected to a soldier, and the other chain had the other hand connected to a soldier. So even if he was the greatest of musicians, 
He couldn't lose himself. It's miraculous. It's the work of God in the life of his people. And the reality is that that doesn't even summarize all that's happened. The reality is that these are trained soldiers for at least that they begin to exit the cell, the chains fall off, and they're able to pass each one of these guards undetected. It's miraculous. <laughs> these were trained men. These were the best of the known world. But how many people know that when God begins to work, there's no one, there's no authority that can stand in his way? He miraculously moves into the situation with intentionality, with purpose. He miraculously intervenes into this situation. And, and that could be enough, but the reality is that the iron gate leading to the city, they get past all of the soldiers, they're out of the cell, the chains fall off, and the only thing separating them from freedom is an iron gate? An iron gate, really. I mean, they were just stacking a deck to make sure Peter didn't get out of here. But the miraculous happened. It opened for them. And, and Luke is specific here because he distinctively makes mention of the fact that it opened, what? Of its own accord. So there wasn't someone else, you know, contriving this situation. It is the hand of God at work. Once they make it through the impossible task of escaping at least four guards undetected, an iron gate stands between them. And of its own accord, it opens up. This is the grace of God at work. And he includes it in his word as he's preserved it through the ages for us. These details alone make it a miraculous event none of which would occur apart from the direct intervention of God in this world. However impressive this occurrence is, this isn't the first time in Luke's account of Acts that this happens. Let's look quickly at Acts chapter 5, verse 19. And it's not even the first time for Peter. <laughs> Amazing. Verse 19 says, God opened the gates of a prison and brought Peter out. He opened the gates of the prison and brought him out. In Acts 16, 25, he does the same thing with Paul and Barnabas. Guard, guards are set, the cell is locked, the chains are on, and yet God uses his authority over creation through appointing an earthquake to open the doors of the cell, holding Paul and Barnabas. And I just love how God does things because just in case you thought it was just some random act of nature, he goes in and gives the detail that the chains fell off the hands of not only Paul and Barnabas, but of all the captives. Just so that you would not attribute it to some random act of nature that, you know, God doesn't control, by the way. No, God controls it all. And he is here definitively putting his stamp on these situations for our encouragement and for the movement, for the momentum of the church the question you may be asking is why? Why? Why if God is the sovereign ruler of all things, providentially caring for his servants as a father would his own children, why wait? Why wait until his servants are arrested, 
abused, abandoned before he acts. Just as we come to see in our text this morning, he could have had him released, he and James. But God, in his perfect timing, waits for the perfect situation to where no one else can get credit. No one else, you, you can't attribute it to anything else except for his divine power at work. He waits until the last hour. Herod was getting ready. He was ready. He knew. He slept that night like, I'm going to have another victim. And the church was worried. But it led them to prayer, fervent prayer, continuous prayer. And I believe that's one of the reasons why allow, God allows these things to happen the way that he does. Because it leads us to actual prayer. God is always working to bring, out, bring about his purposes that are always greater than our perception and our comprehension. Here God is bringing an end to Herod and to the violent hands that he continues to lay upon his bride. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the rage in the... Husbands in the room, can you just for a moment, just emotionally get yourself to that point where you could imagine that someone would even have the audacity to put their hands on your bride? I don't know about you, but that would enrage me. I would imagine that God is here and it takes all of his divine patience to just hold back his wrath for a few more moments. God is not passive in this situation. He's actively working. He's miraculously intervening in this situation. It's kind of like a sus suspense drama that slowly builds episode after episode, adding deeper and more intense character development, drawing you into the narrative. This is how our Lord deals with all his foes, allowing their evil acts to build more and more so that when his wrath is unleashed, both his children and the world will know that Yahweh God has done it. The scriptures are clear that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Yahweh does this well. He humbles the proud man and makes him act like a beast. Remember that in the Old Testament, some of your Sunday school lessons. Until they admit that Yahweh God is the only God. He makes arrogant, stubborn Pharaoh recognize his name and submit to his commands. He raises up and he brings low by his miraculous interventions. But not only that, the second thing is that we learn about God's nature and the nature of his redemptive rescue mission in his magnificent initiative. You see, God takes initiative in this situation. He is the one who initiates it. Here's the text. This divine rescue is one that is wrought by God alone and for his glory alone. This is to work through the Holy Spirit to bring about the salvation of an individual through his divine initiative. Let's observe Peter's posture in this initiative. Peter, how is Peter? Peter's sleep. Peter is dead to the world. Peter is sleeping. Can you believe this? He's sleeping. He's stuck between two soldiers, immobilized behind a cell, with two guards inside and two guards outside of the cell. There's nothing he can do for himself. 
He's securely bound with two sets of chains, one hand secured to each soldier. All of that in an iron gate and closing it off. What could Peter do for himself? Not much at all. Even in verse 7, let's watch God's magnificent initiative. Peter's sleep. I don't know if the soldiers are awake or not, but whatever the case is, behold, suddenly, without any warning, without any provocation, without any summons, behold, the angel of the Lord appears. Nobody sent a tweet to God like, hey, could you send an angel by here and, and rescue me? No, God took the initiative. Peter couldn't do anything for himself. An angel, an angel of the Lord, literally the messenger of God, stood next to him. I, I just asked myself this week, I said, what, what side was he standing on? Because both sides were guarded by the soldiers. But, you know, I digress. That's, that's not really the point. <laughs> the reality is that God initiated it. Even when he couldn't do anything for himself. He couldn't do anything for himself. God had miraculously, magnificently initiated this process. So what did the messenger of God do? He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Peter was clueless to all that God had intended to do. However, aren't you glad that God doesn't wait until we're ready and we're woke to act on our behalf? He works all things according to the redemptive rescue mission he has arranged before the foundation of the world. Peter was dead to the world, as we used to say, growing up, dead asleep, unable to rescue and unable to respond, either in surprise or in celebration to what was happening. For all intents and purposes, he couldn't do anything for himself. The Lord's angel came woke him up, and gave him three simple instructions. Three. This is what he says. He said, get up quickly, dress yourself, and follow me. He didn't ask Peter's permission to rescue him. He wasn't asking Peter's opinion. He didn't even ask Peter how he should be rescued. He told him. He gave him a command. Three imperatives, get up, get, get ready, dress yourself, and follow me. Peter, in this event of magnificent initiative, is himself passive. But God was very much active. After the Spirit awakens him, Peter is able to respond. And I really think about this, and I think about the work of the Spirit in the lives of a believer and salvation. Think about Ephesians 2. It helps me to understand God's marvelous initiative towards us, that we were dead in our sin, much like Peter in his cell, unresponsive to, work, to the work of God and his rescue mission. We were chained to our oppressive patterns of life, much like Peter chained to the soldiers in the oppressive system of Herod and the religious people of the day. We were helpless unless someone released us from our plight. We had no righteousness to clothe ourselves with. 
Isaiah tells us that the things that we did cling to were like filthy rags. The commands were given, but our ears were stopped and we couldn't obey and wouldn't because of the hardness of our heart. Yet, as Paul writes in Ephesians, he delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light. The light that shone in the cell for Peter caused the darkness all around him to cease. The light that shines in our heart shows us the way of salvation. You see, God's redemptive rescue mission is, is still being worked out in the world. He initiated in the Garden of Eden. He paid the ransom on the cross of Christ. And his spirit is at work today, breaking his children free from the dungeon of oppression to the evil one. He is at work. But why? Well, why, well, why does God do anything? Why is he active at all in the world? So that the children of God could follow through on the word of God given by the messenger of God. So that he could fulfill the purpose for which he initiated creation. Namely, to glorify himself and to allow, and to allow us to enjoy him forever. So here, here's the thing. A couple questions. Are you uncertain of the love of God for you? Do you find your thoughts gravitating towards what you must do and the overwhelming burden of sin in your life? Can you identify with Peter in, in his misery in need of a rescue? See, Christ died and is risen so that we might be free. Galatians 5.1 tells us that for freedom, Christ has set us free. He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. God longs to be merciful and gracious to you. Yes, he loves you. If you ever question that, he loves you. His grace is sufficient for you. Maybe death, maybe death feels more promising than life to you. Is there a besetting sin that keeps you bound in a cell of guilt and shame? Hear this, God is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It is his grace that gives life and his grace that brings us to life. Listen to the voice of the messenger of God and do not delay. Today is the acceptable time, as 2 Corinthians 6.2 tells us. He says, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Or maybe, maybe you've experienced freedom in your Christian life and you trusted God for great things in the kingdom of God. Yet now you just feel abandoned by God and the circumstances you face feel like a prison. Like you're just waiting the death penalty. There's no joy, there's no zeal. And at one time, you were very, very zealous for the Lord, excited for what the Lord would do with your life. God's messenger would have you know that like Peter, he has not forgotten you. 
and he is working a rescue operation for you this very day. That when it is completed, you will say like Peter in verse 11, where he says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. The word to you is this. Get up quickly. Rise up. Gird yourself. Dress yourself for action. Look up and be ready to follow him. God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't abandoned you. In fact, God demonstrates his activity in the world on the behalf of his people. And we see the kingdom advance. So we see his miraculous intervention. And we see his magnificent initiative. But here, all of that leads to an opportunity for us to experience his momentous providence. Momentum is generated. How does that happen? Well, when we think about the reality of what's occurring, that it's, that it's miraculous, and that God is the one who is involving himself into the situation, and we see the reality of what that brings, that brings about a magnificent, magnificent initiative. He, it takes his initiative towards us. But it's his providence that's at work. The providence is God's activity of providing his creatures with what they need. It's a function of his sovereignty. Consequently, God demonstrates his activity in the world on behalf of his people. And the kingdom advances, momentum is generated, and it moves the kingdom forward in a greater power, in a greater confidence. I believe this happens in three ways. One is through personal testimony. Two is through intercessory prayer. And three is through missional living. And I think we see that in our text. Personal testimony is in each incident of the miraculous rescue of Peter, the first place he looked to go was where? To the gathering of the people of God. So that he can give a testimony to the work of the Spirit. In verse 14, this is how they respond. They recognize Peter's voice, Rhoda does, as she answers the door. And in her joy, she, she didn't even open it. The witness of the miraculous work of God, the providence of God for his children, brought Peter to that gate. And it brought joy to Rhoda as she saw him. In fact, she didn't even believe it was him. She goes and tells the other one in verse, the others in verse 16, says they saw him and were amazed. Amazed. In fact, before that, they thought it was a ghost. They thought it was his angel. But the whole time they had been praying. They had been interceding that God would do a work. How many of us are actually active in intercessory prayer for other people? Family members that we know are in a rough, difficult place. The patterns of life just lead them naturally to the wrath of God. And we're interceding. We're praying for them. We're asking others to intercede and pray for them. And when God does his work, we begin to doubt. Like, wait a minute. Uh, is that real? We can identify with what's happening here. The personal testimony, the personal witness. Here's the thing. It's about God. This work, this powerful work is about God. 
And then what Paul, excuse me, what Peter tells them is to go tell these things to James and the other brothers. You see, the power of personal testimony is that people learn of the character of their God through his dealings with his people. As we are zealous to share of both the triumphs and the sufferings for Christ's sake, others hear of it and are humbled, encouraged, convicted, comforted, and even assured of the love and the holiness of God. Personal, personal testimony. But then not only that, but intercessory prayer. The momentum of the kingdom is moved ahead through prayer. Luke describes in detail the nature of the prayers of the saints, that they were earnest and continual. They continued in prayer. And in fact, when Peter showed up, they were in prayer still. It's a beautiful thing when we intercede and we pray for others. But sometimes we have to ask the Lord for help for our unbelief. Because although we pray, we may not believe. James 15, 16 tells us, this is the nature of intercessory prayer, to confess our sins one to another so that we can pray for one another. 1 Peter 3, 12 tells us that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ear is attentive to their prayer. Man, if that's not motivation to pray, then what is so my question to you is, do, do you pray? It may seem in a room full of Christians that we would pray, but it's not always the case. And if we do pray, do we pray in doubt? Do we not believe that God is able to work in the way that he said he would? But when this personal testimony is happening, and when this intercessory prayer is happening, we see the momentum of the kingdom and the providence of God moving forward. And what results? What results is missional living. See, even in our text, Peter didn't stay in town, but he wasn't running away either. He was going to further that testimony, to further the witness of the work of the Spirit to the other churches. See, wherever you are, whether you're a mom with kids or your dad in the marketplace, or you're a businesswoman, whether you're an employer and you're, or you are an employee, God calls us to missional living, that as we are going, we are carrying the witness of the kingdom with us. We are taking this personal testimony of how God has been at work in our lives and in the community of believers to the world, where we live, where we work, where we play, and it's a beautiful thing. Here in Acts chapter five, back where Peter was first released from prison, he doesn't go run and hide. He goes straight to the temple and he begins preaching, carrying on the work of the kingdom. Because see, when the miraculous intervention of God happens in our life, when we experience his magnificent initiative, it will cause us to be missional. And it will lead to momentum for the kingdom of God in response to the providence of God for his people. And so I want to challenge you that if you haven't experienced the miraculous intervention and the marvelous initiative 
or the momentous providence of God, I invite you today to recognize your need as the Spirit awakens you to your condition, to the state of your relationship with Christ, that you will respond to the calling of the Spirit of the Lord and follow his lead as he breaks the chains, as he begins to release you from the things that are holding you back. And he makes an unobstructed path towards freedom in Christ through faith and repentance. Would you consider that? And I want to challenge you this morning that if you have experienced this work of God in your life, that you will be an agent of rescue for others, that you will be a part of the momentum of the kingdom of God moving forward, that you will share your personal testimony, particularly in the areas where you felt the grace of God the deepest and the most potent. Because what that does is it gives confidence to others to know that if God could do it for you, then maybe there's a real possibility he can work in my life too. So we started with the question, how could God allow those who stand for him the most boldly suffer persecution so severely from the political and the religious oppression that they often do? I asked that question in closing with the cross in view. He did it all. He suffered it all. The persecution, the abandonment by those closest to him, the beating. He did it all for you. Those who will follow him and experience his eternal rescue from the wrath of a holy and just God may suffer but will gladly follow their master all the way through. I want to pray this morning in closing. I want to pray for the church in America that we will learn to suffer well for our suffering Savior. And I want to pray for that young girl Leah and her family and for everyone that she represents the persecuted church around the world. And then lastly, I want to pray for us here in this room, that if we have experienced the grace of God and the providence of God in our lives, that we would be motivated, compelled even, by the love of God to share that with the world. And that if we haven't, that it would be such a beautiful thing that it would be irresistible. So let me pray. Father, I pray this morning, humbled, humbled, God, by the privilege to be able to share with your people, your saints, the glories of your kingdom, the beauty of your character, the power of your might, the love in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord God, that in this room, that there wouldn't be one person whose ears would be stopped up and would be deaf to the calling of your Holy Spirit, that they would respond in joy, in jubilance, in passion, in zeal to the call of your love for salvation in Christ 
they will respond in repentance and faith. I pray, Father, for those who stand as witness, as martyrs even, of your kingdom around the world. God, would you rescue them? As you see fit, you are the infinitely wise one. You know what you are working out in their lives and through their lives for your glory. I pray that they would gladly, humbly, willingly, eagerly accept whatever you bring their way. And will they do it with, a, with an eye towards the cross of Christ? Knowing, God, that if we are to follow our Savior, we are following him into suffering. But that that isn't the end of it. That you rise in triumphal victory, Lord God. That your kingdom is coming, that your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray that this day, each person here will humbly surrender to your loving grace. I pray for Leah, this 15-year-old girl. And God, all those who represent your witness throughout the world, who are persecuted for their faith, and there are many others, God, it's not in vain. I pray that you would strengthen them. Would you rescue them and rescue us? Rescue us, Lord, from our passivity, from our lack of passion. Rescue us from thinking that we don't need to be rescued. I pray, Lord God, that in your magnificent initiative, you would work in all of these things for your glory, for your namesake, we pray. Amen.